It's my favorite location to teach in all of Israel. First off, just getting to teach in Israel was a dream come true for me. To be able to stand in that place and read from God's Word and talk about it. What, what an incredible blessing. But of all the vocations, and there are many, that we get to stop and, and teach and, and open up God's Word when we travel to Israel, which we will be doing a year from this March. More info to come. There's one that to me stands out far above all others. I think if you were to take a poll of the, of the 25 people that went the last time we were there, uh, you would probably find the vast majority in agreement. We nestled there on a little sanctuary overlook, about three quarters of the way up a very steep hillside, sitting on stone and wooden benches that were prepared there for people to, to sit and look and, and consider the old city of Jerusalem. Look out across the valley called Kadron, at the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. You can see the eastern gate of the temple, not the real one. The one that you can see is actually a faux gate. It's a fake gate that was set up there by, I believe it was uh, Solomon, I'm not sure. But the real gate, it's been discovered archaeologically, is directly beneath it. So as you're looking, you know there's a gate under there. The eastern gate to the temple. The Bible says when Messiah comes, He's going to come through that gate. Well, how's He going to do that if it's underground? Well, we sing the song, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the King will come in. The Bible talks about massive topographical changes that will take place in Jerusalem. And I believe, personally, that's going to include a shift that literally causes access to the eastern gate through which Jesus will ride when He returns. I'm getting way ahead of myself. (laughs) We sat in that place staring directly across at that mammoth 35-acre temple mount. And the place is called the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. I share that because not only was it a favorite of mine, and I believe a favorite of our, of our groups, will be a favorite of yours if you travel there. This was a favorite place of Jesus. To be up on the mount. In the evenings of the last week of his life, we know there were a couple things he did. One was he stayed with Lazarus and Mary and Martha at their house. They were on the eastern side, the far side of the Mount of Olives. And he would climb that, come over the top, down and on into Jerusalem where he had his teachings of the people and there were some miracles that he did there. Confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. And then in the evening, he'd head back up the Mount of Olives over the top and on some evenings at least, back down to Mary and Martha's house. But on other evenings, he just stayed right there. Camped out with the apostles under the stars and olive trees of Mount Olivet. Luke 21 verse 37 tells us during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. Another reason why we know it was a favorite location of Jesus is he loved to pray there. In fact, there's a garden at the bottom of the Mount of Olives where Jesus liked to spend his time, where he often prayed, a garden called Gethsemane. But the Mount of Olives is also one of the greatest locations of one of the greatest teachings that Jesus ever gave. It's called often the Olivet Discourse. And it's interesting because this teaching, this Olivet Discourse of Jesus, was not given to the masses. It wasn't even given to a large group of disciples, or even the twelve. It was only given to four men. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were present, and nobody else. They were the four who got to hear this message. They were the four that Jesus explained some things to. Mark 13, verse 3 tells us, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. 
Now some have called this, Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, some have called it the second Sermon on the Mount. The first Sermon on the Mount, you Bible students may recall, was at a completely different mountain. A mountain up there above the glistening waters of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus taught the masses and He talked about the kingdom. Rabbi Yeshua talked about kingdom principles for kingdom citizens. Now on Mount Olivet, this teaching, though kingdom related, is quite different. It's not about how to live for the kingdom, but how to be ready for the kingdom to come. This is preparation time that Jesus is sharing with these four who would become four great leaders of the church after Jesus' death, resurrection, and return to heaven. So Matthew 24 and 25 contains a series of future revelations. So on occasion here at the bridge, we do prophecy updates, and people always like those. We're like, okay, what's going on? That's what this is. Matthew 24 is a prophecy update for tonight, Sunday morning, next Wednesday night, possibly into the next week, I'm not sure. We're going to be in prophecy update time because that's where we are and that's what Jesus is doing. He is updating His apostles as to what is going to come. So if you're curious about God's agenda, this is a great place to sit and learn and on the hillside here with Jesus. Warning. It's a great teaching but it's also the subject of great controversy and confusion in the church. I'm going to wager, not that I wager, but I'm going to wager just verbally, that there are some of you who will walk out of here tonight going, Rick is wrong. I've shared before, that's okay. You'll learn, figure it out, and come back and agree with me at another time. (laughs) There are great scholars who land in completely different places on Matthew 24 and 25. You just need to know that up front. It's also a point of great contempt in the world. What Jesus is going to share here brings about mocking and ridicule in the world. In fact, Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, Know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where's the promise of His coming? Rapture, schmapture. You know, you Christians, you get all wired up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, all the way back then, said to the church in Thessalonica, there in the first century, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. See, even then, people were getting riled up. Even then, false teaching was beginning to disseminate out into the world and out into the churches and people were saying, like in Thessalonica, oh no, have we missed it? Has the tribulation begun? Paul said, relax. Don't be disturbed. It's interesting because he was with the church at Thessalonica. I've shared before, he was with them for three weeks. He planted the church, spent three Sabbath Sundays or Saturdays with them, then took off, and a year later he writes this church and he's talking about all the prophecy that he taught them in those three weeks. That was top of the list for Paul. Plant a church, talk about Bible prophecy. Plant a church, prepare them for the end. That was the first move that Paul made. But even in the first century church, some were getting confused. We have 2,000 years of the human condition and sin and rebellion piled on top of this. No wonder there's controversy about Matthew 24 and 25. Why so much consternation about this passage? Gang, I believe it's simply confusion with God's Word always comes when we try to force God's Word into our presuppositions. 
We misunderstand God's word when we try to make it fit in our paradigm instead of allowing it to blow our paradigms apart. That's what should happen. We should approach the word and when it clashes with what we thought, we should go, wow, I just got a new thing. And the old thing does not fit here, so I'm going with here. But we want it to fit. We want it to fit into our background, into our understanding, our viewpoint, our religious belief system. God is not interested in your religious belief system. He is interested in sharing truth. And that's what we are called to. Some would say, well, there's so much controversy about this and other passages, maybe Daniel, Revelation. Why not just avoid them and stay in the fluff? Well, you can choose to do that. But here's why we don't. Here's why we go to the heart of the matter and we search out and seek to understand Bible prophecy. Jesus fulfilled approximately 330 prophecies in His first coming. 330. It is absolutely inconceivable that any single person can do that. And I'm sure some of you have heard the different things. I mean, it was said that for one person, mathematically, for one person to fulfill eight prophecies in their life would be, the the possibility is one to ten to the 17th power. Which is the equivalent of silver dollars poured into the state of Texas two feet deep. That's just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled, and we can point them out and track them, and we have many times here. Over 300, some 330 prophecies in His first coming. Why then would we not believe His second coming was going to be just as literally fulfilled? Why not then, when we look at passages and verses, Hebrew verses and New Testament verses, why then wouldn't we take all of those and say, this is going to happen? Well, why do you believe that's going to happen literally the way you know, that, that says? Because it did the first time. And because God keeps His Word and He is true to His Word. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure What does he mean? He means the prophecy fulfilled is even more, it's an absolute assurance to you. You can trust it. He's shown us the first time. You can trust my word. It's interesting to me. People will come along and they'll question the truth of the New Testament scriptures. You know people had to do that with the Hebrew scriptures as well. I mean, that are 3,000 years old. You know there had to be people coming to the Jewish people going, why do you believe this stuff about this Messiah? You know, coming out of Bethlehem and you know being born that way, and why why would you buy that stuff until it happened? And we can look back and track again those three hundred plus prophecies. And so today, people look at the New Testament, go, well, you know what? It's been two thousand years. (laughs) I'm sure it's gotten messed up along the way. Let me ask you: Is 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 the God who created the entire universe is He capable of maintaining the, the security and the truth of His Word? Now I assume He is. And I assume that His Word is as He intends it to be. For numerous reasons, and that's a whole different thing. I won't go there right now, but time and time again we have talked about it and we have seen in here that there is absolute truth in the Word of God. And so when we get into these words of Jesus in Matthew 24, understand He is laying out truth. And I think our responsibility is simply to take God at His Word. Just take Him at His Word. Believe Him for what He says. Lay aside, set down your presuppositions and say, I want to see what Jesus has to say. And then we'll discuss it from there. Whatever you end up believing about Jesus coming, the greatest thing to know for certain is that He is coming. 
So I am completely comfortable with allowing room for disagreement on what he's saying, how it's going to happen, what it's going to look like. I'm going to give you my perspective based on my, my best understanding, based on my study, and based on a pretty simple-minded literal reading. Just read it. What does it say? That's what it says. So that's the way we're going to approach this. Now there's one more thing I want you to keep in mind before we get to this first verse. And then we'll spend about an hour and a half on the first verse. The atmosphere, the atmosphere, and if you don't get this, you will have trouble getting Matthew 24. The atmosphere of Matthew 24 and 25 is Jewish. It is Jewish. It is not Christian. I'm offended, Rick. It's a gospel. It's in the New Testament. That's the Christian part of the Bible. No, actually, the Christian part of the Bible is the whole thing. Okay, the Christian Bible started in Genesis and ended in Revelation. But Matthew 24, Jesus' teaching here is Jewish in its focus, in its context. It is not Catholic. It is not Baptist. It's not Presbyterian. It is not Bridgian. God forbid that there would ever be a Bridgian movement. You know, it sounds funny right now, but there were men like Luther who said, man, don't ever name a church after me. And people probably would have laughed, Luther and... That's funny. You know? This is a Jewish Messiah speaking to Jewish followers about primarily Jewish things to come. If you're Lutheran, I'm not trying to offend. You know, I could pick any name out of the book, Rickian, and it would be just as weird to me. A Jewish Messiah speaking to Jewish followers about primarily Jewish things to come. He speaks in terms of Jerusalem, Judea. He talks about the Sabbath, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, and the context, the atmospheric context of all of Matthew 24 and 25 is Jewish. Well, why are we wasting our time on it? Because there's application for us in the church. Absolutely. The wonderful thing about God's Word is it speaks in broad context as well as specific context. But this is a Jewish Messiah making Jewish claims and Jewish prophecies. Before we make a white Anglo-Saxon application, we've got to recognize the context. It is Jewish. The apostles being Jewish... As they ask Jesus a couple of questions here, and he begins to answer and expound on the end times prophecy, these Jewish apostles had a belief system of their own. Raised as good Hebrew boys, these four guys had some presuppositions that messed up their theology because they were carrying it with them. And when Jesus taught things that were different, they had a hard time fitting it together. It wouldn't be until much later in their lives when filled with the Holy Spirit they began teaching and understanding and realizing what it was truly all about. Here are some things they believed. Right before Messiah comes, the world will be in turmoil with great oppression against the Jewish state. Well, that was the situation right then. They believed Elijah would come, or at least an Elijah-like forerunner. John the Baptist had just come. From a Hebrew perspective, things are looking good for this to be it, for this to be the setting up of the kingdom age. They believed Messiah would then come, bringing in the kingdom. He'd regather the dispersed Jews, those of broken Israel and broken Judah, and bring them all back together. He'd fight against the nations. He'd establish His kingdom. And that's what they were signing up for. And that's what they believed Jesus for. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty biblically accurate. It's just their timing was off. Because you see, Messiah 
Christ is going to do all those things. He just didn't come to do it the first time. That's what they missed. They missed verses like Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Branch, Netzer. You Bible students know that's where we get the name Nazareth. A man whose name is Nazareth, or Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene. A man whose name is Branch, he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Well, there's a problem because as the apostles came to Jesus that evening on all of it, the temple was standing. But Messiah, if they truly believe Jesus was Messiah, Messiah is supposed to build the temple. It's already built. Well, I guess we did the job for him. Which, unfortunately, is what a lot of people in the church think today. We'll do the job for him. No, you won't. I'll come back to that. They missed passages like Isaiah 53, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the treasure with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. They couldn't fit that into their paradigm. Messiah, the great and glorious king, is going to come. But Isaiah 53 says something about Messiah dying and bearing sins, and that just that doesn't fit. So we're going to lay that aside and just ignore it, like people will ignore Revelation today. Like people will say Daniel is too difficult. To, Matthew 24, let's just move on. It's too hard to get today. And because they didn't see those things, their paradigm messed up the teaching. They had to see to believe. Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and do not see. That's the background. Verse 1. Jewish Messiah speaking to Jewish followers about Jewish things. Let's read. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. The apostles were not tourists. They had seen the temple many times. They weren't just oogling and ogling and going, wow, it's just amazing. Isn't that cool? Jesus, did you get your ticket stamp? We can go in you know, and see this. This is really neat. That wasn't the deal here. I believe they were responding to what had just happened. I believe the apostles are pointing these things out to Jesus because of some things that He had just said. Well, what had He just done? What had He just said? Matthew 23, back just a few verses, verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Well, what house? Some commentators say He's talking about the house of all Israel. Some say He's talking about just the house of the Jewish people or the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David, that kind of David's house in this, you know metaphorical picture. But we know very clearly that the house in Jerusalem meant the temple. It was referred to all the way down the line as the house of the Lord. Jesus said when He was cleansing the temple, Matthew 21, verse 13, said, you won't make... My my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. My Father's house. When you talk about the house to a Jewish person, you're talking about the temple. So Jesus... They're near or on or on the Temple Mount. They're in the, in the courts. Had just made the, the comment, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house is being left to you desolate. And they leave the Temple and the very first thing they begin to do is go, yeah, but Lord, look at how big it is. Look at how, how wonderful it is. In fact, Mark 13 verse 1 said, 
They were saying, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And the stones are wonderful. Forty feet in length. Massive stones that we don't have the technology to lift or move today. And the apostles are, are, I think, making a point. This is Rick thinking here. I'm making a little guess here. I think they're saying, your house is being left to you desolate. How's that possible? This is a great structure. And Herod's made it even greater. And it stood since Ezra and Nehemiah went back and, and built it. And you're saying your house... I, they're, they're trying to work it out. Trying to figure out what he's talking about. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 is what Jesus quotes there when He cleansed the temple. He said, in quoting, Even those I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. And so of this house, Jesus says, verse 2, He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Great, guys. You're saying wonderful buildings, wonderful stones, massive structure. Look at this, Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I said it's going to be desolate. I say to you again, I say to you now, not a single stone is going to be left one upon another. How could this great house become desolate? How could it be wiped out? You know, part of the problem is, as human beings, we live with a false sense of invincibility. We go day in and day out, and we don't consider and think about our frailty and how quickly it can change. How fast our strength and our ability can be ripped from us. How quickly our homes that we think are strong and stable and secure can burn down in a second. How a flood can... Have you seen that, that commercial about trying to get you to buy flood insurance where the guy's just sitting and he's reading the newspaper and the floodwaters are rising and he's just still, you know, he's just reading the paper. But it shows the devastation that a flood can cause in a house. And, and we have this, this false sense of invincibility. We see things happen on the news and we say, oh, isn't that awful? I mean, I mean that, I'm glad that can't happen to me until it happens. Until the phone rings and the doctor says, we think it is cancer. And I've talked to more people who have just been devastated at the reality. And you know what? We are all frail. We are all frail. I want to read to you real quickly out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1. You can turn there, but I'm going to go ahead and just start reading here. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert, a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain hill be made and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain in the rugged terrain of broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, when that happens, and we are getting a little ahead of where Jesus is. But when that happens, all the world is going to see instantaneously the glory of the Lord revealed. 
I don't know if it's going to be on CNN or what, but everyone's going to see it at the same time. And it's going to be amazing. A voice says, verse 6, Call out! And then he answered, Well, what shall I call out? This. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The, The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. There you go. There's all your strength, my friends. There's our power. There's all the working out we'll ever get you. You are grass. And the grass withers. And the flower fades. But the Word of our God stands forever. So if the grass withers and the flower fades and all flesh is like grass, I'm eating Twinkies. Because if I'm going out, I'm going out happy. As we live, we become almost immune to these harsh realities, but it's just truth. And I believe the Lord would, would make it very clear to you tonight. You look up at the temple, boys, and you say, wow, how can, how can this be? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Jesus prophesied. Word of the Lord lasts forever. Our spirits last forever. They're eternal as well. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another person is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw... He's drawing some pictures here of things that seem to last better and things that burn up quickly. He says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What is Paul getting at there? Build something that will last. Build something that will last. For all the greatness and splendor of the temple, it would not last. You can be impressed. It's not going to stand. You can do all kinds of things with your life, but there's only one thing, gang, that you can do that's eternal, that will last, and that is speak Jesus into the heart of another person. The only thing that's going to last is seeing our friends and family saved. That's an eternal thing. That's gold. As opposed to wood, hay, and straw. Our houses, our success, our jobs, our career, our 401 guns, you know... Our economy, greatest economy in the world, plummeting because it's grass. It doesn't last. Build on things that last. Herod had tried to buy the Jews with his magnificent 40-year renovation. That's how long. The temple, even in Jesus' day, was still under renovation. They had been working on it for 40 years. The master megalomaniac architect Herod was trying to buy the Jews' favor by building up this temple into a huge monument, much of it probably just to himself. So it was an impressive structure, 90 feet high, crowned with pure gold. An amazing, gleaming, beautiful structure there in Jerusalem. But buildings, structures, towers fall down. We've seen it happen. We have watched as two huge monuments to American capitalism and ingenuity fell to the ground. Josephus, that uh, turncoat but great historian, 
wrote the following about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened 40 years after Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. He wrote the following. After the destruction, it was so bad, nobody could ever believe the city was ever inhabited or that there had ever been a temple. The flames of the burning temple could be seen for miles around as the Jewish people wept. Originally, Titus, the Roman Emperor Titus, originally did not call for the destruction of the temple, but apparently, during one night of the conquest of the city, a brawl broke out, a drunken brawl broke out among Roman soldiers who were on the Temple Mount and trying to secure or securing the temple. And one of them threw a flaming Roman torch covered with pitch and fire, threw it into the temple, and it caught the veil, that rich tapestry. And the veil went up and immediately all of the cedar and the wood inlay all throughout the inside of the building began to burn. And burned very quickly and burned very hot. It burned so hot in fact that the gold inlay that surrounded the temple on the outside began to melt and drip down into the stones. And though Titus had not called for the destruction of the temple, his men were crazed with the possibility they could get some gold. And they began to tear it apart and bust it open to get into the cracks and to get a hold of that gold until not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus had said. Oh wait, that's a literal fulfillment of prophecy. Yes it is. Yes it is. Why do we dispute it? I still wonder today why people dispute the literalness of Scripture when God has proven it to us time and time again. Well, so Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now Jesus heads across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives. The apostles come along with him. The four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, in verse 3 tells us, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I mean, they're, they're so curious. They just start kind of pouring out one question, but asking, you know, like kids will do that, you know. Why is this, and how come that, and, where, and when, when are we going to do this, what, you know. That's kind of what they're doing, asking these questions, putting them out to the Lord, asking for signs. They're saying, what are going to be the signs that the end is coming? I think it's really interesting here. First of all, I don't think they even knew what they were asking. Yeah, I don't think they had figured out enough to know what they were asking. They, they were confused because Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and yet they still are thinking of Him as Messiah and when's the kingdom going to come? But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking for a sign. You know, that's very different than just a few chapters back when He was talking with the Pharisees. Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He replied to them, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. And in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? And Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and he went away. He doesn't rebuke the apostles when they ask for a sign. He just nails the Pharisees for asking for a sign. Why is that? Because the Pharisees were not reading the sign that was right in front of their faces, Jesus Christ. They couldn't see Messiah for who He was. And for all the signs He had already shown, Jesus finally got to the point where He said, you're not getting any more signs, but one. The sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the earth. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. Three days in the belly of the earth. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. 
The great sign was Jesus Himself. But to have your sign, your, your eyes open to signs and the signs of the times is not a wicked thing to ask. If you're looking at the signs with the help of Jesus. If you're looking at the signs with faith in Jesus Christ. If you're looking for signs to tickle your ears, or if you're looking for signs so that you can scare your neighbors, then you're not looking for the right kind of signs, and you're not going to get them. But if you are focusing on Jesus in faith, it's not a problem to say, Lord, can you show us what's going on? Lord, can you, can you give us indication of what you want to do? Luke 19, verse 41 tells us when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, which we studied already in Matthew. But he said the following, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within, within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize who I was, why I had come. And because, and there's the judgment. This is why the temple fell. This is why Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews finally driven out. Because they did not recognize the time of their Savior's visitation. And my friends, when you reject the Savior, you reject salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like, listen to this, labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, Paul says, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you're all sons of light and of day. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John asked for signs, and Jesus obliges. Verse 4. When Jesus answered and said to them, or and Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Merely the beginning of birth pangs. There are some who believe this passage speaks about the past. The name of that belief system is preterism, or a preterist. A preterist says all that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 happened to the Jewish people in A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It all was fulfilled back then. There's a very strong belief system that some have that say that's the deal. And I completely disagree. Absolutely disagree. And here's one of the reasons why. There are many reasons, but here's one of them. Jesus, in just these four verses, is describing a broad, measurable panorama of time. He's not describing something that's about to happen immediately. He's talking about a big picture, long term. He's giving four specific signs of the coming end. And these things are going to lead up all the way to the very end. He says false messiahs. He says wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes. All this is going to be happening. Don't be frightened. You're going to start seeing this happen. 
And this is what he calls birth pains. This is going to lead up to the end. He says, this is not yet the end. But it's going to lead up to it. He says, this is just the beginning in verse 8. This is the beginning of the birth pains. And so already in these four verses, we have several very clear signs of the run-up of the end times. Very clear ways that we can know. If you ask me, Rick, why do you believe that we are in the end times? And I have stated categorically, I believe we are. Not just the end times in terms of the entire last 2,000 years of the church. I believe we are on the precipice of the precipice of the end of the end. And it would not surprise me if I don't even get finished tonight. Much less the Lord coming in a week or two weeks or a year. We're that close. At least as far as Scripture is concerned. Why do you believe that? Rick, if you're talking about deception, Jesus says, war, famine, earthquakes, we've always had these. Yes, we have. You know, you're absolutely right. But there's an important key to how we view and understand these signs. And Jesus gives it in verse 8. These are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Labor pains. These are contractions. What does that mean? How is that a key to understanding these signs? The Greek word there for birth pangs is Odin or Odin. Odin. Which I think is a great word because I can even imagine a Jewish woman screaming that during childbirth. Odin! You know. <laughs> birth pang! That's what the word is. But it means literally to travail in childbirth. So the, the translation birth pangs is right on target. Some translations, the King James I believe says these are all the beginning of sorrows. Sorrow is not a good translation. It's, these are the beginning of contractions leading to childbirth. How does a woman know that her baby is about to be born? It's time. You know? How does she recognize that even the close of, uh, the, we're close to the end of labor. How do we know? It's not the same all nine months. For those of you, and, and there's a plethora in the bridge this last year, of women who have been pregnant and given birth, you didn't find out you were pregnant and the next day start having labor pains. If you did, they put you in the hospital and tried to stop them. So it's not the same all nine months. There are two things, two things here that signal the immediacy of childbirth, both having to do with contractions. The intensity of the birth pangs and the frequency of the birth pangs. And I was in there with Cheryl all three times and we measured. You know, they put that little belt, which has got to be real comfortable. You know, with the big plastic square thing on it, you know, and they stick that on, they strap it on nice and tight. Feeling good? Yeah, this is great. Thanks a lot, Doc. You know, feet up the whole nine yards. And that thing, and that thing measures, sorry, maybe that was too much of a picture for some of you. That thing measures the frequency and the intensity. You can watch on the little chart. Oh, we're going up, we're going up, we're going up, we're coming back down, breathe, breathe. You know, and frequency. They're every five minutes. Great, I've got time for a sandwich. They're every 30 seconds. I'm here, you know. Frequency and intensity. Frequency and intensity. With that in mind, in fact, I'm going to give you a mathematical equation for understanding the signs of the times. Here you go. The equation is this. Sign plus frequency plus intensity equals birth pangs. Sign plus intensity plus frequency equals birth pangs. Because you can make a very easy case that all these things that Jesus just said, these four signs, they've all been going on ad nauseum since the beginning of the world. Yes, they have. Frequency 
and intensity are the key. With that in mind, think about these four signs. There will be, number one, an increase in spiritual deception. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. An increase in spiritual deception, which means in the time of the end, we should expect a greater frequency and in greater intensity of lies and deceit and falsity when it comes to the Messiah. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is leaving the church at Ephesus and he leaves them with these words. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Paul was a good shepherd. Not like the good shepherd, but he was a shepherd who cared about the flock. And one of the things a shepherd does for his flock is warn them when there's danger. And say, Heads up! Heads up! Listen, pay attention. This, This could be deceptive this could be heretical this is something be careful test it paul said in acts 20:29 20, i know after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves that's key men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be on the alert frequency and intensity of deception and i would add even within the church from within the church you're going to see more and more. And as false Christs and false messiahs rise in intensity and in frequency, we should know there's a sign, there's a contraction that we are close to the end. I had a phone call from a woman, woman just this last week who's been invited to join a Bible study in another place. And she just said, I've never heard of the author of the book that they're using in this in this Bible study, my first thought was, well, you know the author of this book, so I, I stick with that. But I, I just said to her, look, and, and the author is one that I'm familiar with, and I said, you know, I, I think he's good. I, I think he's, he's solid, he's grounded, but take your Bible. Take your Bible with you. Brothers and sisters, you don't have anything to worry about when it comes to deception if you are in the Word. If you take the Word with you, if you leave the Word at home, you will be deceived. You will be. We are not bright enough to know the difference unless we're in the Word, unless we're in the truth. You've heard the thing about the counterfeit dollars. Who was telling me this just recently? I think it was uh, Mike Hoffman. Um, that, that those who, who, who study counterfeit money, they, they know a lot, that's not the best way to do it. That the best way is to study real money. And when you study the real thing, then the counterfeit's really easy to spot. So study the real thing. And if you're involved or invited to be with a Bible study with a group of people maybe you don't know or they're using a book or a, or a program that you're not familiar with, take your Bible. Test and compare everything. Do not be deceived because deception, we are told, will happen and it's going to come from within. And you should be testing, by the way, everything I say tonight against the Word. And if you're unsure, go back and read it again. If we apply the criteria of Jesus, sign plus frequency plus intensity, we have to admit, in the church today, deception seems to be on the rise. Do you know that in the last 60 years, just in the last 60 years alone, there have been over 1,500 people who have been publicly documented as declaring themselves to be Messiah? 1,500. Now I can throw out names like you know, David Koresh, and people go, oh yeah, yeah, that, that nut. 1,560 years. Declaring not to have a new truth or a new way or a new book or a new revelation. Declaring, I am the Christ. Frequency. 
and intensity. This has been on the increase like never before in the past 2,000 years of the church. People wonder why I occasionally go after books and writings and, and things like that. Why not just preach and let preach? Because I take very literally and personally the words of Paul to Timothy when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I was thrilled, thrilled to death this many of you showed up tonight. I am so excited, and not because of numbers, but because of hunger for truth. That thrills me. And so when, when Paul says the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, praise God, a few of you have some endurance left. And we're in the Word together. Part of the tragedy of the increase in both intensity and frequency of false Christs and false words given in deception is that more and more, as a pastor, I am watching Christians wide open to it. Christians who are saying, yeah, but I want that, or I need that, or that feels good, or that's a good look, let's try that, or let's try this. And I'm saying, okay, have you tested it? Have you gone to the Father with, with His Word open and said, Father, what do you think about this? Be careful. We are told false Christ will be on the rise. That's number one. Number two, Jesus says there's going to be an increase in wars. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Nations going to rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There's a plurality there. When Jesus said those things, guess what? In the 40 years between when He said it and when Jerusalem fell, there weren't that many wars. Not enough to justify Him saying there's going to be all these things and then the end will come. He's talking about a much broader picture here. Rick, we've always had wars. Well, yes, we have. Psalm 140, verse 1, Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. And they continually stir up wars. And James chapter 4, verse 1 says, Where do wars and fightings come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? However, a quick historical glance at war throughout history and you see a marked increase in frequency and intensity over the last hundred years. As a matter of fact, no war ended as intensely as World War II did with the dropping of a bomb that was inconceivable in future gen- or past generations. Since World War II, and I've shared this before, there has not been a single day of peace on planet Earth. There hasn't been a single day in the last 60 years, again, interesting 60 years, that was you know, 60 years back, 1948, I think was 60 years ago, There has not been a single day on the planet where there hasn't been some major war being waged and fought. Increase in frequency and intensity. In fact, today, one of the greatest reported sources of stress among people is the combination of the threat of terrorism in a nuclear age. And the fear. That's why 24 is such a love show. Why so many people watch that or other shows similar to it is because it's, it's just so real. It's, you know, and there's, there is a, a worry out there. 
Praise God as, as believers, as His children, sons and daughters, you don't have to worry about this stuff. You just don't. But our world is, is scared. Warfare and the threat of nuclear war, they both increased in incredible intensity and frequency in this generation. I could go on and on about that. I'm not going to. There will be, number three, an increase in famines. Jesus said in verse 7, Haven't we always had famines? I remember reading something back in Genesis about a famine and Joseph in the seven years. I mean, are famines kind of par for the course of this world? Not to the extent that we have seen in this generation, gang. In the late 60s, early 70s, a number of prominent scientists began to refer to the days as, as the age of the famine. They were saying, this is it. The population explosion was of great concern, and people were afraid that food was running out on planet Earth. Food running out is not the issue, and is not what drives famine today. Greed, and, and all the sickness that goes with it, That's why there's famine in the world. That and several other very complex reasons. But by the 1980s, largely due to the intense famine in Ethiopia and the sub-Saharan Africa, there there was a a surge, you may recall this, in the world of we got to get help out there. Live aid happened. You know? And and we are the world happened. USA for Africa, which actually was was an afterthought because the first people who did it were Canadians, so if you're from Canada, good for you. Various campaigns, organizations, and and, and in the church, a lot of people getting on the move to to work against famine. How are we doing today? In the world today, one-third of the world is well-fed. One-third of the world is poorly fed. And one-third of the world is starving to death today. February 17, 2006, report by the BBC stated the following, according to statistics given at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, by 2015 the world will have at least 100 million more starving people than it has today. Furthermore, 10 preschool children die every minute from malnutrition. And this number has not changed since the early 1980s in spite of all the global awareness That jives very closely with World Vision's statistics, which tell us that a child dies from hunger every seven seconds. Famine in the world? For most Americans, we get higher food prices and higher oil prices, and it's a headache and it's a pain. But for most of the world, worldvision.org tells us as fuel and food prices continue to climb, the international crisis becomes increasingly severe, leaving millions of children and families at risk of severe malnutrition and starvation. We say, man, I had to pay an extra 20 bucks to get my tank filled today, and people are dying because they can't afford rice. And this is the state of most of the world. We're going through what we call this horrible and intense recession. Did anybody miss dinner tonight? I mean, other than intentionally? <laughs> Anyone not get fed this week? Regardless of your financial situation, did you grab a burger sometime this week? We don't have a clue. But the severity, the intensity, and the frequency of famine in our world is greater now than it has ever been before. Now, in Luke 21, verse 11, Jesus adds something to famine. He said, also pestilences. Pestilence will be on the rise. We'll just kind of include that within famine. Pestilence, sickness, disease, illness. In America... There's one doctor for every 572 people, which is why you don't get in right away. Okay. One doctor for every 572 people. In East Asia, there's one doctor for every 2,000 people. In East Africa, 
there's one doctor for every 17,000 people. And pestilence is on the rise. Of all the pestilences of history, the most devastating has got to be, you know what it is, the AIDS virus. The AIDS virus that is staggering in its impact. 25 million people have died from the AIDS virus or died between 1981 and 2007. So that's not including the last two years. 25 million have died from it. 11.6 million children have been orphaned because of it. And currently, 33 million people are living with HIV or AIDS right now, today. Well, no, not now. That was 2007. So the statistic has risen. Now, I'm giving you a bunch of statistics, but the problem is we can leave them as just that. These aren't statistics. These are people. These are faces. These are individuals dealing with this. I'm not sharing it to be shocking, but to be clear about what is going on related to what Jesus said about these signs of the end times. Not just generic signs that could be thrown out anywhere. No, these are the beginnings of birth pains, frequency, and intensity. And number four, he says, there will be an increase in earthquakes. Well, that's odd. (laughs) Why why that natural disaster? Well, it's clearly measurable. We can track it. We can see how that's been going. I think you're getting the idea with the intensity and frequency here, but, but check this out. Regarding the frequency of earthquakes, based on graphs of earthquakes measured from the 1970s to present day, if you looked at a graph, and I looked at one just this afternoon, the graph would start in the 70s going up to, uh, what, 2009 today, and it goes like this. Straight up. Jagged, but heading up the whole way. Increasing, increasing, increasing. About 5,000 total reports 30 years back to a peak in 2005 of 30,000 earthquakes in the year of 2005. Did you know that? 30,000 earthquakes hit the earth in 2005. It dropped down to 28,000 in 2009. Oh good, so we're going back down. Don't bet on it. (laughs) Now granted, our ability to track and to follow earthquakes is a lot better today than it was. And we're able to, to, to see and even measure the smaller earthquakes. So forget about frequency for a minute or set that aside. What about the intensity of earthquakes? What about measuring earthquakes 6.9 or above? How's that looking? In 1863, from there to 1900, roughly 38 years, 12 earthquakes were documented in the world measuring 6.9 or higher. From 1901 to 1938, another 48 years, 53 were measured at greater than 6.9 in magnitude. From 1939 to 1976, 53 jumped up to 71 that were measured at 6.9 or above in magnitude. And from 1977 to 2009, 136 have been measured at higher than 7.0. I, I spent way too much time on this this week, but I looked at so many different areas, and I was going to bring them all. I, I decided, you know, you get the idea. We don't have to talk about all the devastation, all the earthquakes that have happened just in recent memory, the last two or three years, and the millions of people who have died because of them. According to seismological reports, between 1997 and 2007, a period of... Um, only 11 years, there were 99 earthquakes measuring 7.0 or higher. That's more than a six-fold increase on the previous decade and greater than any time in the previous century, which was itself greater than any time in previous centuries. Our earthquakes, Lord, frequency and intensity, birthquake pangs, contractions, 
Are earthquakes on the rise? I'm just giving you statistics. Absolutely they are. Sine plus intensity plus frequency equals labor pains, contraction. Verse 9. Then, stop right there. (laughs) The kin, you wanted me to take my time, man. All right. (laughs) Then, I stop because Jesus is now shifting to a time after contractions. A time that begins to take place after the birth pains. What happens after a woman has contractions and they intensify and they get more and more frequent? Ultimately, there's delivery. Delivery. Then they will deliver you, Jesus says. They will deliver you to tribulation. I believe right there at the beginning of verse 9, Jesus now is talking about the seven-year tribulation. We're going to talk more specifically about this on Sunday. Then, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, granted, there are those who disagree with me on this. But I think a literal reading of the Scripture and the book of Revelation makes very clear and teaches this scenario. This is what we know. If you just take Revelation literally, this is what we know is coming. The next thing on God's prophetic program, the next thing... Nothing else has to... Everything that has had to happen has happened. The next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. It's called the Harpazo. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. The Harpazo, the catching up of the church. Everything's happened that needs to happen before that. Well, when's that going to happen, Rick? We don't know the day or the hour. We obviously are learning something about the seasons and the times. Day and the hour, we don't know. That's the next thing on the agenda. After that, at some point, and the harpazo, the the rapture doesn't make this happen, but but soon after that begins the tribulation. Which I believe, again, begins right there in Matthew 24, 9 and following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about it. I'm not going to go there tonight because we will on Sunday. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 gives detailed account of the tribulation in that seven year period straight from verse 1 of chapter 6 all the way toward the end of chapter 19. Talks about that. That's the next thing that's coming. It's God pouring out His wrath and His judgment on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Rapture of the church, the tribulation, followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 at the end. The next thing after that is the establishment of the kingdom. The kingdom that God promised David. The kingdom God promised Israel. I will establish my kingdom and my Mashiach, Messiah, will rule and reign from Jerusalem. Right there. And there will be a thousand years of peace and prosperity in the world. Oh, Rick, are you just making that up? Read Revelation 20. How do you know it's a thousand years? Because Revelation 20 says it six times. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. I get it, Lord. No, let me say it a couple more times. A thousand years, a thousand years. It's absolutely clear. If you take it literally. After that thousand year rule and reign of Jesus, Revelation 21 and 22 detail for us a new beginning. New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. Breathtaking step into eternity under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ forever. Jesus now, beginning in verse 9, is describing that period of time called the tribulation. Well, Rick, I thought this was a a Jewish thing. It is. The primary reason for the tribulation, there are some other reasons, but the primary reason, I believe, is to wake up 
the Jewish people. Wake them up. Help them to see what is going on. Note this, it's a critical question. Who is it that Jesus says will be hated by all nations? Who's he talking to? Jews. You will be hated by all nations. The Jewish Messiah speaking to his Jewish followers about the Jewish future. Have we not talked enough about this? I mean, do you know, do you see in the history of the world any people group who has been hated more than the Jews? Gang, you need to know that anti-Semitism in the world has kicked into high gear. And as a matter of fact, if we were to track incidences of anti-Semitism, they're at levels now higher than they were in the 1930s right before Nazi Germany. That's how bad it is for Jews in the world right now. Again, something that we are not seeing or not aware of. It's a clear indication that the tribulation has kicked into gear will be global anti-Semitism. Even far beyond what it is right now. He says, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Every nation on earth will hate the Jewish people. And you know, when that happens, the tribulation's rolling, man. It is rolling. How many nations love the Jewish people today? I could count them on one hand. We're getting pretty thin. America, I hope, I pray, the hatred for Israel and the Jewish people today is absolutely remarkable and it's going to get worse. It's going to become a global hatred. Why is that? How can America do that? Well, part of the reason I think is the church will be gone. And the Holy Spirit in the church is stemming the tide of evil right now. Not because we're all that. (laughs) Not because we're so great. But evil in the world is being kept at bay because there is a righteous presence. There are still people who love the Lord and love His people and recognize the value of the people of Israel. But desolations are determined. Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. Desolations are determined for this people. Are you saying, Rick, that Israel is the target of the tribulation? Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. Alas, that day is great. So that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Tribulation, another name for it is Jacob's trouble. Because it is a time of great shaking for the Jews. Amos chapter 5 verse 18 Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him (laughs) or goes home and leans his hand against a wall and a snake bites him will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light even gloom with no brightness in it another name of that tribulation period is the day of the Lord why? why would it be the day of the Lord? because it is the day of God's wrath where he finally says, it's punishment time. I'm done. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Shout and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Zion is one of the mountains in Jerusalem. My holy mountain is Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again. Check that out. Nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Joel is prophesying the worst of the worst, the worst possible day ever for the Jewish people. Many Jews figured 
That was 586. Man, that was when the temple was destroyed and we went to Babylonian captivity. And yet, AD 70 was worse. Worse. And many Jewish people thought this is what Joel was talking about here in AD 70. And yet, the Holocaust far surpassed it. What was the Holocaust what he was talking about? If you read Scripture as it stands, there is a day of desolation that is worse that is coming on Israel. The tribulation will be worse. Rick, that sounds awfully anti-Semitic just to say that. Hey, that is not what I want. It is not what the Lord wants. But it's what happens when a people reject their Savior, there is no salvation. You slap away the hand of the one who's saying, grab on, I'll pull you into the boat. You slap that hand away, guess what? You're going to sink. For my part, Psalm 25 verse 22 says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. That's what I pray. Oh God, redeem Israel. Save your people out of their troubles. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let peace be found within her walls. But here's the good news. I kind of hate to give good news when that's such heavy news. But the tribulation is not for followers of Jesus Christ. Please understand that. I went for years thinking we were going to have to fight it out. We were going to go through this bad boy. It's going to get horrible. Somehow we're just going to have to hang on. I was talking with, with uh, Bill, my father-in-law, uh, just today actually. No, it was last night. Went down to his little man room down there where he keeps all his ammo and guns and man stuff. <laughs> Rick, i got to show you something. He said, check this out. And he pulls out the newest handgun. This bad boy is heavy. And it has a clip that holds 17 rounds. <laughs> He's like, we got to go shoot that. You should have seen me the last time I went with him to the gun range. And, and yes, your pastor goes to gun ranges. I went, I went, shot off. He had a different handgun. I don't even know what this thing is. I don't know guns. But I, I'm like, he's, he's, just shoot it. Okay. <laughs> and I walk back 30 yards, pick the gun up, come back. <laughs> but he's got these guns. And he said this. It was so funny. I go, man, you, get, you just got an arsenal down here. And he goes, well, you know what, Rick, here's the thing. If God raptures the church and decides to leave me behind, I'm taking some with me. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a gleam in his eye, you know, as I could see Bill imagining blowing away the servants of Antichrist. Boom, boom. Oh, this is holy stuff. Boom. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, Bill, I hate to burst your bubble, but you're not going to be here. You are not going to be here. Well, I hope not. I came home this afternoon, couldn't find anyone in the house. I thought, was it? I'm heading down to get Bill's guns, you know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul said to Christians, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. You're not saved because you're good Christian people. You are saved because Jesus Christ died for you. And you receive that, believe it, accept it, and and trust in Him with your life. Just give your life to Him. You're not going to be here when all hell breaks loose on earth. You're going home. 
you will go before that. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus said to the faithful of His church, He said, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I'll keep you from that. You don't have to be part of that. Just trust me. And ambassadors, I will pull you out before I wage the war. You see, that's what happens with ambassadors. They're always pulled out before a war takes place. By the way, just a side note, the church is mentioned by name. And I'm almost done. Hang with me just a few more minutes, gang. I told you this would be long. (laughs) The church is mentioned by name 19 times in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. 19 times. All of a sudden, chapter 4 and 5, you're in heaven. And then all of a sudden, you do not hear the word church mentioned again the entire time the tribulation is being described. Chapters 6 through 19, it's not used once. That alone is a dramatic picture of the fact that it's not here. The church is not here during that tribulation period. Where are we? Tucked away with Jesus. We're on our honeymoon, man. We're home with Him. He said, behold, I I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you also will be. I'm going to come get you and I'm going to bring you where I am. He is at work right now in the honeymoon suite in heaven and it's yours and mine to go home with Him and be saved out of tribulation. Well, Why wouldn't we have to fight our way through the tribulation? Because Jesus did it on the cross. Because you are saved by grace. And you have nothing to prove. You can't prove anything. Verse 10. Verse 10. Finish up. Let's get through verse 14 and we'll stop for tonight. At that time, many will fall away. At what time? During the tribulation, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. I just got to make a quick comment on this. Here's a sign for you. How we consider the elderly and the ailing in our society is a sign to me that love is growing cold. When even the slightest suggestion is made for universal health care, but when people get older, we're going to have to decide whether or not we're going to allow them to have all those things you know, to keep them alive just a few more years. Because you know they've lived their life. Let's give it to someone who's younger. That mentality, gang, is wicked. Let me tell you something else that's wicked. As of this week, Washington State joins Oregon in implementing the assisted suicide law. Because there are some people who, when they're told, and a doctor signs off, three doctors sign off on, you only have six months left to live, You can decide to be taken out and a doctor will assist. And there's legislation out there to force doctors to assist, just like there's legislation out there in the new presidency to force doctors to perform abortions even though they don't want to. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love, the love of most people will grow cold. You know what the original Hippocratic Oath said? I looked it up today. I will prescribe regimens for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment and never do harm to anyone. I will not give a lethal drug to anyone when I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. I will preserve the purity of life and my arts. That was the original Hippocratic Oath. I will not do anything that brings harm or takes life from a human being sign of the times when human life is devalued the love is going to grow cold 
last thing I want to point out tonight. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Wait a minute, Rick. I, I thought you said we're caught up. We are. Remember, this is not to you. This is not about you. This is about those who are enduring during the tribulation. Jewish people and others who come to faith in Jesus Christ. More on that Sunday. Verse 14. Russ, listen up. I say that because he's going in a missions class right now. He's been there every Monday night for ad nauseum. But check this out. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. This is the hallmark verse for world missions. Talk to a missionary, I guarantee you. I, I, would, I would, again, I'm going to wager. Five minutes and a missionary will bring up that verse. Matthew 24, 14. Gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. That's why we do what we do in world missions. Now, hear me on this. I am 100% pro-missions. When we started this church, we said this church will always be a missions-focused church. This church will always give to missions. will always be involved and encourage world missions. Because it is part of the mandate of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But gang, verse 14 has been ripped out of context. What people will say today is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. Therefore, Jesus will not come for His church until we have preached to every nation on earth. And it's simply not true. Why are you getting all in our face about that, Rick? (laughs) I know I am. Remember that the Olivet Discourse is a Jewish Messiah's prophecy to and for the Jewish people. The great evangelist is not the church. Rick, Bless just prayed for evangelism. You just said, we've got to be more evangelical in our approach. We've got to get the word out. And you're saying now that, that's, that this is... That what, are you, what are you saying? I'm saying this. The final evangelical voice on earth will not be yours. It will not be mine. It will not be Billy Graham's. And it will not be Greg Laurie's. The great evangelical... You want to know? You want to hear the voice? The last voice of evangelism to be heard on planet earth. Here's the person who's going to fulfill that verse. Revelation 14, verse 6. John writes, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That's the last evangelist right there. Well, when does that happen? In the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And the church isn't even here. For you students of Revelation, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 are no longer preaching. They died, they resurrected, they're caught up, they're gone. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses, Revelation 7 indicates, who are spreading the gospel around the whole world, they are now safely tucked away in a hiding place in the wilderness safe against Antichrist and his angry attacks. But God is still bringing the gospel. He's still bringing it. And then the end will come. The gospel will be preached to all the nations of the world. And then the end will come. But it is not dependent on you. And it is not dependent on me. I disagree, Rick. Okay, listen. This is why I'm telling you this. 
Salvation is not dependent on me. And it is not dependent on you. And based on the book of Revelation, if you look back over time, all the great evangelistic efforts of the church will pale in comparison to how God saves people, even in the tribulation. It will be unbelievable. A massive harvest of souls. We will all say we were saved by grace. Every one of us. We were saved. And it wasn't of human effort. And it wasn't by human power. And it wasn't because we had the right strategy or the right program or got the word out in the right way. That's not why we're saved. We're saved because God is a good God. And because His grace is to all people. And He's going to show us. We thought our evangelistic crusades were pretty, pretty awesome. He's going to show us, you know what? I'm going to pull you out, church. I'm going to tuck you away safely. We're going to have a great time. But then I'm going to show you what evangelism is all about. Then I'm going to show you how it's done. So, we're off the hook. Forget Les's prayer. Forget what Rick said. I'm not talking to my friends. I mean, God's going to do it anyway. Why waste my time? Let me ask you this question. Even if you were off the hook, why would you want to be? Why would anybody be looking for a reason not to talk about Jesus? When somebody comes into your life and radically changes you, don't you want to tell people about that? When you meet a, a new friend and, and you just enjoy being with them and they're a blast to be around and they're just a great person, don't you mention it to somebody? Why would you not want to talk about Jesus? Knowing what's coming to this Christ-rejecting sinful world, why would you not want to pull people out of that? Yes, people are going to be saved, but it's going to cost them their heads. It's going to be an ugly, brutal time. It's going to be time of such incredible deception, unparalleled. And we've said before, if it's hard to come to the Lord now, how do you think it's going to be in the tribulation? So the coming of the end does not depend on the success of the church. It is not dependent on us building the kingdom, though there are pastors all over the world right now who say it is. And I strongly disagree. We are not the builders of the kingdom. We are being used in the kingdom but we will not present the kingdom to Jesus on a golden platter and say see look what great look look at the stones Lord look at the building look at the architecture see what we did not going to happen although we are called to build the kingdom we will not complete it the coming of the end is not dependent on our evangelistic efforts although that's exactly what Jesus commissions us to do it all depends on the Lord alone now that being the case at any moment, we could be out of here. It does not depend on us finishing some final things. At any moment, Jesus can come. I think that's really cool. And that alone is enough motivation for me to speak His name constantly. Because I might not be here next week to speak His name again. Oh, I'll be speaking it to Him. But I not, might not be around. Either because He comes or maybe because all flesh is like grass. Something happens to take Rick out and I'm not here to speak His name. Speak it while you can. You tell people about Jesus while there's still time. While God is being patient. I do not mean to undermine world missions. As a matter of fact, I believe that intensifies world missions. If He might come at any moment, we have got to be alert, ready, and moving in His will. Toward the end of Matthew 24, Jesus said this, 
in verse 44, He said, For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom His Master put in charge of His household to give them their food at the proper time? Behold, it's that slave who His Master finds doing so when He is. Doing what? Caring for His household. Feeding, clothing, nurturing, being Jesus in the world. Let's be doing that when He comes. Amen? Let's, let's pray together. Father, I praise You and I thank You for patience. For the patience of my brothers and sisters in, in staying seated through all this teaching. I know it's a long one tonight. But more so, Father, I praise You and thank You for Your patience. I thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have not come yet because that means one more person, probably tonight, as we've been studying, Lord, someone somewhere has declared You Lord and Savior. We praise You for that. And we thank You for Your patience and we pray, Lord, we walk in that place of divine tension. On the one hand, be patient, Lord, and on the other hand, come quickly, Lord. But in all things, we pray, Jesus, come. When the time is right, just come get us. In Jesus' name, Amen.